it's very nice to be here. I feel particularly uh, privileged and a bit concerned, in a way, about being here because I'm just thinking about Professor Wolf's talk earlier on, saying, about, you know, he, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a theologian. And I'm thinking, whoa, you know, <laughs> I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a theologian, I'm not a political commentator, but I'm, I'm a forensic psychiatrist. I'm a psychiatrist who works with people who've done terrible things. So my experience is very much, it's really taking us away from the other end of the spectrum, from the political down right to the personal, and bringing in this fascinating question that we were just beginning to touch on, I think, at the beginning with our excellent um, first talk, which is about the distinction between evil acts and evil persons. And in a way, I guess the perspective that I'm bringing is from mental health, which invites a type of thinking about people as just as that as people and the question of whether the, the people who are admitted to secure psychiatric hospitals are often understood or seen or labelled as people who are evil people. Um, and so what I wanted to share with you is some ideas really from discussions of what, cons- what counts as a disorder, um, what counts as an illness. Um, and hopefully, um, I'm confident that with Julian's commentary, we will have, have some food for thought about whether the language of illness and disorder is helpful or relevant here in any way. So, um, so just by starting with thinking about treatment, because there is a school of thought that says, well, something's treatable if you've got people who are up for treating it. And you may not think much of that argument. Indeed, it's a pretty crap argument. But, but nevertheless, I, I, think, I think that it, it, it is, it's, uh, it is a, it's worth just contemplating what it is that people do when they say that they're treating something. And I think there's something here about a body of professionals, the notion of a body of knowledge, but certainly the idea of improving a state of affairs, making something better than, than, it, than it was. I think what's interesting too about the notion of treatment in this particular context is that treatment <coughs> is generally speaking of individuals with an individual problem, that we don't s- apply the language of treatment to all human disadvantage or disabilities or problems. <coughs> we don't talk necessarily about treating poverty except in a sort of metaphorical way. Um, and the language of treatment, I think, is very much about individuals. <coughs> there is case law in this country that says that treatment really includes almost anything that, um, that healthcare professionals say that it is, sort of habilitation and rehabilitation. And so the notion of treatment is actually, in, in legal terms, just for, and I give that only as one example of a definition of what treatment is, it can be, can be defined very broadly to include some notional improvement from one state of affairs to to another. So (coughs) what I'd like to suggest is that we could only pose this question sensibly if we could make an argument that evil will be consistent somehow with with a description of illness or disease or disability. If there was some way to formulate evil into that, into, that discu- into that discourse. And we've already seen um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the difficulties around the definition of evil. Um, uh, but because I'm uh, not a philosopher, not a theologian, <coughs> somewhat naive, I do have some ideas about what might constitute evil, and I'm going to share them with you in a minute. But um, I put up here um, uh, Jerome Wakefield's uh, definition of harmful dysfunction just because, as many of you will know, there is a profound debate about what constitutes 
um, disease and illness, particularly in the field of mental phenomena and what a mental disorder could be. And again, many of you will be very familiar with the discussion, the tension around fact and value in relation to psychiatric diagnosis. Um, and Jerome Wakefield has claimed that his definition of, of harmful dysfunction is a way to think about mental disorders um, that is perhaps less value-laden um, and more objective. Um, and my, um, my uh, wonderful colleague and advisor, and mentor in many ways, but Bill Fulford, if he were here, would be wanting to critique that. And indeed, has written for those of you who are interested, has written a wonderful paper critiquing Jerome Wakefield's definition um, in a very elegant, in a very elegant way. So, as I say, this is a very profoundly <coughs> complex area: the notion of what constitutes an illness, what counts as a disease, what counts as a uh, disability, what counts as disorder. And it is very much, I think, t tied up with the is-ought and fact and value distinction. And uh, many, I imagine everyone in this room will place themselves somewhere in the spectrum of <coughs> the connection between is and ought. Um, but it comes to the fore very profoundly in relation to mental illness, and particularly the notion of a norm, because... You know, the, the idea that a disease is a statistical deviation from a norm naturally invites questions about what the norm is and how anybody would go about setting a norm. And that might work, for example, for diabetes mellitus. The norm around your blood glucose might be reasonably straightforward to, to settle, such that extreme deviations from that norm would be defined as, as disease. Although even there, of course, there are, there are gradations. As some of you will know, very extreme departures in terms of blood glucose often lead to severe damage and death, whereas quite small departures from the norm are manageable with diet, change of behaviour, don't necessarily cause great damage. So establishing the norm from which the diseased are going to depart is clearly very complicated. It's clearly very complicated when it comes to something... Um, uh, which is not so easily measurable. <coughs> and I think the other, there are a number of other problems, really, which is about the question of whether you have to suffer and whether illness is substantially different from disease. Also the question of whether there, rather as we were talking about with, with, in relation to evil earlier on, whether it must cause harm or some failure of performance. <coughs> so I'm really not... I'm only going to touch on this very lightly, only to set these questions and to say that they exist and they are not easily answered. And there is considerable debate about them in the same way that we've been hearing about debates about theories of evil, which is about the, the debates around the nature and status of mental, dis mental disorder. These are just some of the questions that we could ask. Is illness the same as disease? What is the relevance of pain or dysfunction? Do you need to... Clearly, you don't need to be in pain to be diseased? Do you need to be in pain or suffer in some way to be ill? What about dysfunction? Can you have a disease or injury or damage that doesn't re rely, doesn't uh, result in dysfunction of some way? Where do statistical norms come in and for what purpose? Again, that might be fairly straightforward in relation to blood glucose, but it's going to be problematic around killing other people. Um, I, you know, because killing other people is actually quite an unusual thing to do 
Uh, certainly in peacetime, um, it, it is quite an unusual thing to, to do. Um, and people who do that are statistically very unusual. Um, you are statistically extremely unlikely to kill anybody. You are statistically very unlikely to be killed by anybody. You are most likely to be killed by the person you're currently sleeping with. So be nice when you go home. <laughs> so how do we decide what the norms are without reference to norms? Again, this is really one for a deeper philosophy than I can even attempt. But when it comes to judging behaviours, I think that's going to be pretty, pretty crucial. And, and you, you, know, you will know as well as I that psychiatry and debates about psychiatry are riven through with discussions about norms and how you decide what an abnormality is and the fact that because psychiatry is riven through with values, there are lots of changes about what constitutes a disorder and you only have to think uh, about about being gay as being the most obvious example, which you know, has changed its, uh, changed its nature from being disordered to not being disordered. And there are, many other, uh, there are many other changes. Again, you'll see the parallels with the discussions of the theory of evil, so that you know, self-respect <laughs> becomes a, a virtue which is expressed in a certain way. Now we think of self-respect in a different way. So there's something here about the changeability of values and the difficulty about putting the norms there but how norms are pretty crucial when it comes to the discourse of illness and disease. If you're going to move this language into a type of professional bioscientific language, that becomes fairly crucial. And there are also, I think, very important issues here when it comes to illness and disease about agency and identity, the extent to which people have diseases or live with disabilities or inhabit the identities of one who lives with a disorder of some sort, um, and the extent to which we think of people who are diseased as being afflicted by, um, by an illness or a disease, a disease process, that you, don't, you couldn't possibly choose it in any way. You can't choose to be ill. You can't choose to be diseased. And also some question about how much you choose to recover, uh, I think is an interesting one. Again, most of us don't, there's some, I think, real debate about the extent to which you, you could say, I'm going to recover from my osteomyelitis. Although there might not be quite so much debate about the recovery from my alcoholism. So there's something here about will and agency and identity that's absolutely crucial when it comes to making a, a diagnosis of some sort of mental disorder. Remembering that this is all in the context of you meet someone, or in my world I meet someone who has done something appalling and what would invite somebody like me, or indeed you, to place someone to say this man is ill as opposed to this man is evil? And indeed we already heard that beautifully put by Professor Wolf earlier on when making this distinction between a couple of different types of, of, of homicide. Is this person a crazy person? Are they just sick? Or ha are they making a political statement? And that is... Uh, that is indeed the question in a nutshell. And how do you address that question involves uh, these uh, uh, as well. Then that process of deciding which discourse somebody fits into is, of course, very much part of the work of a forensic psychiatrist, the work that I do when I go to the criminal court, which is actually not so frequently now because I work mainly as a therapist with people who've done horrible things, but, just to but occasionally in relation to risk and control of risk. Um, 
Now, we've already heard that evil is, is hard, like time and elephants, are quite hard to define. Um, and I, my, these are my assumptions, and these are, this is my position from which I start when I think about evil. This is my, I'm sitting out my stall now. So I'm setting out, my position is this, that human <coughs> evil is a human activity. Nature is not moral. There are specific aspects that we've already touched on about its consciousness, its plannedness, its considered. For me, an important aspect of evil is exploitation of the vulnerable, and I'm going to come, come back to this. And a lack of concern for suffering. Again, there's already... Um, We've had a discussion about the evocation of moral horror, and I'm wondering if one of the things that horrifies us is a lack of concern for suffering, and um, and also I think a type of contempt for the vulnerable, uh, which is quite important. The self as the as the only concern, I think, may also be relevant to what horrifies us, and this uh, I've made this reference to the notion of the monster that threatens the community. This is thinking about Christopher Logue and, 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 um, and also the notion of, of the seven basic plots and the idea of the different stories there are in human, the human narratives. And one persistent narrative in human history in terms of telling stories is the monster that threatens the community. And sometimes the monster is a type of animal monster, but increasingly <coughs> the monster that threatens the community is a human monster, a human individual. And most stories, narratives of serial killers are very much about this. I, put, I love crime fiction, but I, I don't do serial killers. I find the, all that stuff very dull. I mean, because I think that because it's within the trope of the monster that threatens the community and the hero or heroine who goes out to stop the monster. And that's, you know, that's a fine, entertaining trope. But there is a sense in which it's not very, for me, not very interesting. And I know that Professor Vettelson is going to be talking about narratives, and really there is so much here to say about the narratives of agency and ownership um, and what happens and the stories that people tell about doing terrible things and how those stories change. So I would also very much support what's been said already, which is I think an important aspect of the notion of evil is this to make a judgment about another person's mind. I don't think it is just about actions, although I accept that that complicates things. I think there is something here about a person's state of mind and that, that wish to hurt another person deliberately. And I guess, you know, as Professor Wolf was saying earlier on, I would say that I'm very much in the camp, probably, of everybody. Evil is not a noun, it's an adjective. It describes a particular state of mind that anybody could get into. I guess I'm an Augustinian from that point of view, although I'm not sure about original sin. But I think the mm -hmm. capacity to do something cruel, um, I think, is there. In the hospital, actually, when we're talking together about this, we do quite a lot of talking about this, as you can imagine. We like to think about a bicycle lock and that, that <coughs> you need four numbers to make the event happen. But there are states of mind in which there are three numbers already present. And quite what you call that, I think, is an interesting problem in itself. But, <coughs> <coughs> but the wish to hurt another person, the wish to abuse or shame or humiliate, that is something that might, <coughs> might be very common <coughs> indeed. But the actual commission of the violence may not be. So here's my go at a definition of evil. Uh, <coughs> it 
there are all sorts of problems with it, um, which Julian, uh, no doubt, will point out to us later, or I hope he will, at least. Um, but um, the, this is where I'm working from. This is the framework within which I'm working. So there's something here for me that it must include the intentional suffering inflicted on the vulnerable, and that this suffering is treated with contempt and cruelty by the perpetrator. The perpetrator sees the suffering, induces the suffering, witnesses the suffering, and responds with contempt and cruelty. His or hers, cr the cruelty and contempt in the perpetrator is positively supported by the perpetrator. The perpetrator thinks of themselves as a good person for having these attitudes. Indeed, he or she may be supported by a group of people, maybe only be one other person, but they, they may well be supported by other people who support them. Uh, and, and that's important. Um, uh, having, having people to support you in your beliefs is one of those little tests that you're not going mad, isn't it? So, um, um, so if you can get other people to support you, that's quite important. And then finally, D is what we were talking about already. And I think it is, this is pretty crucial, which is the notion that, that this state of mind and, its and or its consequences, and its consequences evokes a judgment of in other people. So that after the event, or even when the event or the state of mind is exposed, others judge, others use the word evil to describe. And I would take the view that evil is a socially performative word, that it's doing something, just as we were saying or, or already. Um, and furthermore, we didn't mention, for example, the fact that well, so the people who usually use evil in this context, and most commonly in peacetime and between disasters, are judges that evil is a word that you will often find ju criminal court judges <coughs> using in order to justify the social exclusion of an individual. That there's something about the anti-human that, and that judgment of someone as being anti-the-human that then justifies their exclusion um, and justifies the punishment that's going to follow. And, there's a, and, and that, I believe, is the reason that judges often use the language of evil because that's going to set up the frame for the sentencing and the, the punishment that's going to follow. Um, and the condemnation that's reflected. I, I've been very influenced, I guess, in my uh, thinking about this by Mary Midgley, whose um, book on wickedness, I think, is a very rich one. And uh, she makes the point that conceptual slippage is an absolute bugbear in this area. And there's the temptation to conflate evil with all types of violence, all types of antisociality, all types of aggression is very tempting and very easily done. Um, <coughs> but I think, it, I think it is important to be as vigilant as we can be about trying to keep within the parameters. If we were really trying to formulate a theory of evil, we'd need to try and keep our parameters as tight as possible. I'd like to suggest that this type of lack of concern and contempt for suffering is an important feature of what we call evil, and it's that lack of emotionality, that lack of empathy. And I don't need to tell this audience what an enormous topic empathy is, so I'm not going to say any more about empathy or lack thereof. But I think this is maybe exactly where we may, we're asking the questions about what we call a lack of empathy, what we call a lack of interest in human suffering. It's a very complicated relationship between empathy and violence. If you assume for a moment that you can reasonably measure empathy, using paper and pencil measures, um, then there's actually not much evidence that there's a direct relationship between lack of empathy and being nasty to other people. It's not quite as simple as one might think. Um, and indeed, there are plenty of 
very serious acts of cruelty that may well be associated with a type of empathy. Indeed, you may well be thinking, as many people have argued, that in fact to have cruelty and contempt or even enjoyment of other people's suffering does suggest a type of empathy, just not a very pleasant one or attractive one. And I think there is something about rarity, um, that, but clearly lack of frequency is quite different from undesirability. Um, but you know, breaking, simply breaking the rules is quite common, although not all that common, that in ordinary life, in ordinary social life, in ordinary liberal democracies, breaking the criminal law, for example, is actually still only done by minority of citizens, really quite a small minority of citizens, and quite a small subgroup of that minority are responsible for violence. The chances of people being physically violent to others is really vanishingly small, uh, really very small. And what we, so what we might call evil, but because it is, is, seems to me to be even less common, but then we're back with the problem about the social judgment, that actually what we've got here is an interface of different axes, an axes of individual states of mind, but also the axis of the social. It seems to me there's an aspect of the definition that's profoundly social and relational, that somehow the, both these axes need to be incorporated. So, I mean... I think there may be something here, too, to think about in relation to degrees of evil, which we touched on earlier on. Um, I would argue that not all homicides are, are, are evil, that murder is not evidence of evil, but most child abuse is, because it involves the consistent, persistent exploitation of the vulnerable um, and indifference to suffering, whereas a lot of murders don't involve that in any way. So you could, you could begin to make an argument that evil is a, has some similarities with those situations or conditions that we call disorders. I think it is possible to argue it's statistically deviant. Um, I think it's, and it's unusual. It's socially abnormal. So that social set of values, uh, you know, it is, it ha it is something that is condemned and seen as being highly abnormal. Just the language of that sick, the fact that that type of language comes up again and again, I think, tells us there's a very strong pull, not necessarily saying it's valid, but it's a very strong pull in terms of the language to say that this, is, that this discussion, this theory of evil needs to include some notion of sickness. Because it seems to show you know, gloomily similar patterns, then you could say, well, you know, things that abolish individual difference might be more like a syndrome. Um, and that's a feature of diseases, if you like, that they abolish individual difference. So you could, you know, you could start to do a type of talk around disorders of normal humanity. Um, you could say that it's a disorder that's located in some individuals, that perhaps we're all at risk of getting this disorder, but only a subgroup of people will get it in certain circumstances and its most profound symptoms will only occur in the most extreme of cases. <coughs> and one of the attractions of doing that, to use that language, is that it could then evoke compassion, as well as disgust and moral horror and shame and the other things we were talking about, that we might feel a type of compassion for the irrevocable ability of, of having done something dreadful that really disturbs the universe. And so you take, take somebody's life, you change your world, you change their world forever, but you also change your own world in some ways. And that's certainly the case for the men that I meet in my work. 
and there's something very powerful about the inability to, the, or the, the, the requirement to live with having done something terrible, and the lack of a discourse in which to frame it, the lack of a narrative, how to make narrative, and in fact, we, we set up a group <coughs> for people who killed somebody close to, close to them seven years ago, <coughs> wittily entitled The Homicide Group. Um, I defy you to find a better name. Um, um, well, this is something we came to with the, with the guys that were in it in the end. Um, but one of the purposes of the group is to allow them to explore, as it were, the cover story by which they came. They came to commit their offence and they, they came into the hospital and the narrative of how they experience, of the experience of coming to rethink how they talk about themselves as people who <coughs> killed and where they place themselves in terms of agency and, and, and story. Um, and of course one of the great advantages of talking about evil as sickness or disorder is you can locate it firmly in deranged individuals and you won't have to think about the political framework that we were talking about before lunch. <coughs> Indeed, you know, one, this is one of, the, one of the great divisions, isn't it? That if you make this <coughs> an internal, personal issue then you, there will be no connection between the political and the personal. And, um, and I think one of the big questions about the notion of political evil is whether it makes personal evil more likely or more common or facilitates that. But equally, whether personal evil can combine, as it were, to make a type of political evil so that there's some very complicated relationship between the political and personal, which seemed to me to be important and because we, you know, we think about feminist philosophy in, 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 in this context, but I think there's much more to say. So, again, this is a, a way to think about evil as disorder, perpetration of evil, a failure of human function, a dysfunction of the social mind. I've drawn, thinking here, Robin Dunbar's notion of the social mind. Victims are seen as fair game, the predator state of mind, clearly very unusual, and it's fascinating, just the language that the notion of fair game is, of course, comes straight from sports, the hunting sport, and, and, and predators who do literally think of their victims as fair game, and merely as a means for those of you who like camp. So, and then contemporary vulnerability and need, which undermines pro-social connections. That there's a, there's a trial going on right now of a man and a woman who are charged with the torture and murder of a 15-year-old boy. Um, and one of them is going not guilty, and the other is um, claiming manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. So that's an interesting... And that really lays it out, I think, that where the, the stakes are very high here. So here, of course, are some of the counter-arguments, um, and I think they're quite substantial, really which is that there's no... Perpetrators don't suffer at the time. Um, there's no evidence of any dysfunction in terms of... except of the attitudes to the vomit. There isn't... The perpetrators, again, don't seem to be dysfunctional in any way. There's evidence of choice. It seems to me that the choice <coughs> is absolutely crucial here. Um, and this is, no, this is an Aristotelian type of approach in terms of ignorance and duress <coughs> that... The most perpetrators of things that we call evil are about choosing. And in fact, the sense that people haven't chosen is something that takes you out, generally speaking, of the discourse of evil. And we don't necessarily see them as ill or diseased until the events have been exposed. And then there's then often... It's, but it's always post hoc, it seems to me. Um, and there's no evidence of concern for the self 
or contempt for others, and often contempt for other people's concerns. Um, so there are, you know, it's a state of mind that may be triggered by a number of individual, by emotional states internal to the actor. Um, that's not unimportant, and that for me would be one of the risk factors, um, one of the numbers. But I would also want to think about the cultural factors. And again, we've touched on this, and I guess what I'm arguing is a much closer relationship between a personal individual state of mind in which acts of evil are contemplated and the political or cultural milieu in which that individual functions. Um, and we know that evil actions of the type that we've been pushing around today are much more likely, much more where in, within a milieu where there's a stereotype or discourse about acceptable victims, where there's a discourse about um, the denigration of weakness and vulnerability, um, a discourse that talks up differences between people. Again, any of you, this audience in particular will know there's a common thread, isn't there, that often in order to justify to yourself treating somebody in what we will later come to call an evil way, you usually construct a narrative in which you decide that the other person is not really a person. And that's a very common feature. And that tells us straight away that it seems to me that the discourse of evil is about humanity and inhumanity. It's crucially about that, so that when you're doing something evil, you are making a statement about humanity. And later on, when people call you evil, um, they are making a statement about your, your humanity or lack of it. Um, and I think that's quite important. And, of course, in relation to the state, it's something about people don't matter. I mean, much of the language, of course, about wanting to call... The reason that people get admitted to hospitals like Broadmoor and other special hospitals is that there's a notion that they're very different. They're different to us. They're different to other perpetrators of crime. I think there's... And I think... And they're different, for example, to perpetrators of genocide or different to perpetrators of, of bomb outrages. I mean, we have had, you will know that in trials, we had the man who set a bomb in, um, who, the bomb in Old Compton Street, which blew up a pub. Now, this gentleman, there was a great deal made of his trial. Was he mentally ill or wasn't he? Was he did he motivated by hatred, which is apparently unpleasant but normal, or motivated by delusions about gay men, which would be abnormal, um, unpleasant and abnormal? Um, so, but I find myself wondering about, of course, in that situation, the differences are talked up, but not the similarities. So, for example, the fact that there may be many people who hate gay men, but don't go about bombing them. And the fact that being, there are a lot of people who are deluded, who don't necessarily <coughs> break the criminal law. That being delusional doesn't necessarily mean that you treat the criminal law with contempt um, or a lack of concern. So there's something here about what differences and similarities count and who gets to decide. And it did seem terribly apt, and I know we've already, we've already talked about the Vance Conference, but it's 70 years ago this weekend. Um, so it did seem terribly, terribly apt to think about a group of men who were not in any way seen as damaged or disabled, bright, successful, on top of their game, you know, people who felt that they were entitled, as I think Professor Ventlison will be talking about, something about the, about the entitled to make decisions to wipe out a subgroup of the citizenry in a very thoughtful, calm... I don't imagine... Probably most of these gentlemen had never touched a person in anger or violence in their lives. Um, and we know that many of them were... They knew that, that, that would be viewed as wrong by other people. 
Um, they took steps to cover up what had happened, what their decision-making processes. Some of them afterwards were recalcitrant <coughs> about their attitudes. Some claimed to be remorseful. At the time, they were quite certain that they were doing the right thing. I doubt very much that they would have considered themselves as evil in any, in any way. I think there is something very important, and perhaps I would say this as a, as a therapist working with people who tell stories about evil doing. Um, I think for me there's something very important about how people justify their actions to themselves. And in a way, one aspect of mental illness and disorder is about a lack of justifications that other people can understand. And I'm thinking now of a man that I worked with for a number of years who came to talk about the index offence. Um, which was uh, the uh, rape and serious assault of um, a young man over a period of days. But he spent quite a lot of time in work talking about a previous offence in which he'd nearly killed somebody. He never got caught for this offence. Um, it took place somewhere in Whitehall, apparently, um, and it was never reported. So um, he said that he remembered coming up to the moment where he was going to kill this guy, and he said that he remembered thinking to himself, this is mad. I can't justify this, which I thought was very, really, as nice a description or a definition of what it is that we're pushing around here in terms of what might be mad, in terms of what are the, what's the justificatory narrative that you generate in order to make sense to yourself of what you've done and what you're planning to do. You have to make some sort of narrative. And of course, in my world, the narratives that we hear range from the merely distorted to the frankly deranged. But, but outside of a hospital like Broadmoor, there are also plenty of justificatory narratives. And there's a question about whether they're just as deranged in their own, in their own way. Um, but clearly, uh, when we think about the Vance Conference, there's a narrative of 15 men who clearly have a social support for their narrative. Um, and it makes sense to them. And I'm going to stop there just with this. This is the, really the therapist in me, and this is where we start. That, that the therapy starts with actually a move from a notion of passivity to an issue, a, a story of agency. So in the hospital, um, people are admitted, and they will quite often start with, well, you know, I was mentally ill at the time. But quite a lot of the work that we do in the hospital is about the move from passivity. To, to agency and the creation of a narrative in which people can say I did X, Y or Z and on that note I'm going to stop Well thank you and it, the paper is even richer than the talk so <coughs> I, I can't hope to substantively engage with um, anything other than what I take to be the main theme. So the, the title of Gwen's paper was Can We Treat Evil? And I'm, I'm going to ask the question, should we treat evil? And the answer is yes. Um, now, just to start off with a few preliminary remarks about disease and disorder. She begins with a discussion about whether evil can be classified as a, as a disease. And I'm going to argue this is an irrelevant moral question because disease and health are instrumental bads and goods. They're, they're only important insofar as they contribute to well-being. So many people think that the question, is X a disease, is an important question to ask. And can we treat X is an important question. But I'm going to suggest that the, that the really important questions are, is X bad? And can we prevent, modify or remove X? 
Now, the, we, there was historically great importance to calling things diseases because it gave people an excuse, it gave people privileges, it gave people compensation, it was a focus mm. for research, for offering medication, you could only really treat diseases with drugs and surgery. So many things were classified as diseases in order to, to enable them to be treated in certain ways. Um, my famous example, of my, my favourite example of, of something that was called a disease for social purposes was the disease, the psychological disease or disorder, drapetepomania, which was the disorder that slaves had that caused them to want to run away from their masters. <laughs> um, the importance of understanding the insignificance of disease is quite profound. A year or so ago, a woman was executed in Virginia um, for being found guilty for conspiring to murder her husband. Now, in Virginia, you're not executed uh, if you have intellectual disability. Now, they tested her IQ, and her IQ was 72, so she was executed. Now, the definition of intellectual disability, and this is, this is the biostatistical model of Christopher Bohr's, is an IQ less than two standard deviations below the mean, so an IQ less than 70. That means 2.5% of people will have intellectual disability. That was a purely statistical choice. We could have set the definition of intellectual disability one standard deviation below the mean. That was chosen in order to decide what we would study, what we would try to find cures for, how we would focus our resources. But there's nothing magical about two standard deviations. There's nothing normatively significant about that. But this court used that statistical measure to decide whether this woman lived or died instead of using some sort of functional assessment of her responsibility. So in light of these problems, Guy Kahane and I have proposed an alternative account of what we call disability, called a welfareist account of disability. So we argue that we should reclassify some state of biology or psychology as a disability if it tends to reduce people's well-being in a given set of social and environmental circumstances. So what matters is not whether somebody has a disease, and indeed we should, we should evaluate the significance of diseases by the degree to which they cause disability, that is, reduction in, uh, in, reduction in well-being. So many people have normal states that are statistically normal. So impotence with age, deafness with age, loss of memory with age. These things are bad, even though they're not diseases, uh, and are quite rightly the candidates for modification because of their improvements to well-being. Now, what's all of this got to do with evil? Now, I like your definition, actually, of evil, but for my purposes, it doesn't really matter what's um, so different about evil versus violence or aggression. What's important about evil is it involves very serious harm to other people, innocent people. So we could offer something like a welfareist account of evil disposition. So on this view... Some state of biology or psychology which tends to significantly increase, and I say significantly increase, on the basis of, of good evidence, increase the chances of committing evil acts in a given set of social and environmental circumstances um, is what we might call an evil disposition. And we should modify biology or psychology in these particular circumstances, provided that the costs to the evil agent are reasonable. So whether this is a treatment for a disease or an enhancement is, is morally irrelevant. Now, what sorts of costs would be reasonable? Um, well, when the costs to the individual are small and the benefits to others are large, the costs are, are reasonable. This is what might be called the duty of easy rescue. But even more, when the interventions to reduce evil dispositions are in that person's own prudential reason, prudential interests, 
we have a collision of reasons, both moral and prudential, to intervene uh, in those biological or psychological states. Now, what might ethically stop us, and I'll finish on this, of course, the person may not consent to this kind of modification. It may undermine their autonomy and their freedom. So we should not, on this objection, uh, modify the bi biology or psychology of individuals who have a disposition to seriously harm other people um, because this will undermine their autonomy. Now, this objection fails in two kinds of cases. Firstly, it doesn't apply to children or other individuals who are not autonomous. And secondly, this constraint, the constraint of respect for autonomy, may be quite reasonable in conventional medical ethics where the goal is to promote an individual's own well-being, that, it's a good, that is, it's a good objection to strong paternalism, but this is irrelevant when the individual represents a serious risk of harming other people. Harm to others has always been a well-accepted ground for interfering in individual liberty. So my conclusion is we should modify the biological and psychological states of individuals that constitute reasonably reliable dispositions to evil acts if the costs to that individual are reasonable. And this may represent an alternative to some forms of involuntary incarceration, which also remove their freedom, and it may also be a ground for preventative intervention, but I'll stop there. Say a few words on that, or um, nope, no, no. I think uh, I think it's uh, I think it's. I'd be very interested to hear oh. what the audience have to say. Thank you. Are there more evilly acting men than there are women, and if so, why? Um, I'm not sure I can answer that. Um, in terms of violent crime, men greatly exceed the number of women. Um, and that is a very interesting feature of, of crime, to which we don't have a very good answer. When it comes to acts of evil, <coughs> and we're back to our problem of definition again, I'm not so sure that the numbers are so different. Um, I'm, and no particular reason to think that they might be, um, I think. But it, it does rather rest on your definition of, 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 of evil. Um, of course, but um, but as I said, I don't think there's no necessary relationship between violence and, and evil. Violence is certainly male-dominated, but I'm not sure that evil is. Roger, thanks, Diane. Thanks for a fascinating uh, talk. Um, <coughs> I was interested that you described the actions of the patients as appalling, and you didn't seem to be using inverted commas and all. You were um, saying that wasn't a reaction that you yourself weren't having. And what I'm wondering is, could you say a little bit more about how, your, how you understand your response to what they've done? In the sense that, you know, it sounds like you're appalled or horrified in the way that I guess most of us would be. But because you know, as it were, the clinical background to what they did, and it's presumably not their fault that they lack empathy uh, that has led them to do these things, you may not be blaming them. What they did. So is there, is there a response of moral horror which doesn't involve blame? That's a very interesting uh, question, and um, and mm. I'm not quite sure how to answer it best because, uh, as you say, almost by definition, to be admitted to the hospital is to have had a sort of tangential move away 
from the discourse of blame altogether or to have it altered in some way to include a note of compassion as well as condemnation. Because the condemnation doesn't go away altogether and, and, and the condemnation is still alive and kicking in, in secure psychiatric settings. And interestingly, there's a, there's a colleague, there's a professor of nursing called Tom Mason up in Liverpool who's written very interestingly about the way that psychiatric nurses talk about evil and how they, and, and the word evil does come up in people's discourses, quite often with someone who's recalcitrant and we're just not getting anywhere off. And you're, you're hippos, he's just evil. Um, and so the, the language of, 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 of condemnation is, 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 is definitely there sometimes. But it tends to be much more dynamic and fluid, much less of a category. Um, and what we see, and, and it's partly my thoughts about evil as a state of mind, is partly based on having spent a lot of time talking to people who've done dreadful things and being aware that the states of mind that they're in change. You know, I've been with a man <coughs> whose state of mind is very cruel and contemptuous and derogatory, including of me in the room. And other times, a state of mind where he is remorseful and thoughtful and reflective about what he's done and where his future lies. So that type of changeability, one of the problems, I think, about, about the way that we traditionally use the word evil is it becomes a box in, you know, in which one, one puts people in. And it's an, it's an absolute end-off. You, know, you don't get out of being. It was what we were talking about before. But once you've been labelled as such, you can't get out. So it doesn't change. Um, and it becomes a type of stain. So, I mean, I would say that, do we blame? I mean, do I blame? Sometimes, <laughs> I think would be the only way I can answer your question. Thank you. Very nice. Thank you. Um, the word psychopath wasn't used at any point by either of you um, today. Uh, why not? Uh, <coughs> if I could just speak maybe personally, I. From personal experience, I don't know what this, what help this is to the subject, but I do wonder if there is some sort of, for want of a better term, grey area where there are people who would not fit into a medical or a popular definition of psychopaths, to use the term for a moment again, but who apparently don't have certain, what I would regard as normal human sentiments. So, anyway, there we are. But, <coughs> and you see, I mean, this is, this is, this is the question, isn't it? If you lack human sentiments or the capacity to feel those types of human emotions or engagement that we prize and think is a very important part of being human, what do you call that? And you know, and what we've been pushing, what we're pushing around here, is the decision-making process by which you say that's a bad thing, um, or it's an evidence that you're ill. And I like Julian's, you know, sort of just cutting through that and say, well. Let's try and change it. If it brings about bad outcomes, let's just try and change it. Let's not worry, really, about... You know, maybe that doesn't matter very much. And I have some sympathy with that. And, and, uh, but, I mean, I, have, I didn't use the word psychopathy for, um, particularly because it's a word... It's, it's become a term of art, and it also is a bit of a word of power, too. It's a bit like, it's a, bit like a trump card that people produce, you know, as if... I mean, and there are three ways in which people have traditionally used the word psychopath. There's when the English Mental Health Act had a category of psychopathic disorder, we sometimes used to call people who were detained under that category psychopaths. Then there's the work of Robert Hare, who's a psychologist, who has devised a type of measure in which you can categorise somebody as what he calls 
a psychopath. And these are generally people who are what you would normally think of, cold, callous, remorseless, commit a lot of violence. They constitute only a very small subgroup of people who are violent or criminal. And they're an, they're an interesting group of people. But they are, and that's all they are, they're an interesting subgroup of people. Hare has tried to argue that these people exist but without the behaviour. But I think, there's a whole, see, I think there's a whole new discussion to be had about what do you call the state of mind in which you are careless of other people's sentiments but you don't actually ever act on them. Or the worst that you do is that you're unpleasant, verbally unpleasant. A bully, say, at work. You know, and, but you never actually physically lay a hand on anybody. The Van, or the guys at the Vance Conference, arguably all in an evil state of mind. Are they psychopaths? No, they're not remotely. Um, so, and then I mean, the last way that people use the word psychopath is the tabloid way, which is really just a shorthand for people that we're scared of and we don't like. So I don't find... I, 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 I do use the word psychopath when I'm at work to refer to those people uh, who score very highly using Robert Hare's measure. Because I think there is some research that suggests that they're, you know, they're more at risk of being violent, which is not unusual, which in the context of what you're talking about is quite interesting. You see, but what, what? No, I wanted to ask you. What do you think mm. then about these children <coughs> with callous, unemotional personality or um, defined oppositional personality? I, I I'm extremely worried about it. I'm extremely worried about the judgment that small children are des- de- described as callous and emotional. Guess who describes them as callous and <coughs> emotional? Their parents. Where do they get their horrible genes from? Dumb. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's something, you know, and not, I don't know how many of you in this room are parents, but, but par- parents do not always like their children. There are a number of parents out there who really dislike their children very much. I'm willing to bet that they're overrepresented among the subgroup who presented their children as callous and unemotional. I mean, there's something very worrying, I think, plus the sort of worship, worship at the god of trays. You know, and the and the goddess of genes, little bits of protein that make you nasty to people. Ray, you know, I mean, it's just nonsense. Sorry, <laughs> don't get me started. <laughs> but you know, the, I think no, I th- I'm very une- very 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 uneasy about the cold callous and emotional traits. But you know, it's, um, make somebody's career. I think we have about twenty minutes, but you also have a long list of questions. So try to be. Brief, if you can, see your next. I have to try to be brief. So, so okay. if I you can. In your comments about dehumanisation, because mm. um, it seems to me, look, um, if I so I want to perpetrate some evil act, mm. and I don't go through the process of dehumanising mm. my mm. victim, is that in a way worse? Um, <laughs> I know they're human. I just <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Um, whereas um, all these people who are going through dehumanisation in a way. It sounds like they're trying to um, avoid having their behaviour uh, described as evil, at least by their own lights. Well, it also makes me think about the processes that were. Some, there were quite a number of studies done of Nazi of, of the Nazi concentration camp guards after the, in the context of the various trials, and a lot of them were seen by a variety of psychiatrists of. of, of uh, Perhaps dubious. Well, not dubious, but but just you know, given the context, you know, you wonder how sensibly the, the, these assessments can be made. But I, I guess there's something here for me about what it takes to do something terrible. And Robert J. Lifton's 
written about what it took the doctors who worked at Auschwitz, who were doing the selections, to carry out what was, what was necessary. And I think that discourse of dehumanisation was indeed vital for doing that. But I think you, you raise a beautiful, a beautiful irony here, isn't it, that in order to, to treat someone in an inhuman way, you have to, as it were, dehumanise yourself at some level. Do you have to? Well, I, 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 don't, I don't know, because I only see this subgroup of people who've done terrible things. Um, but I do think that there is I think that there, I think something has to be done uh, in your mind I think you have to create some sort of narrative because I think it's very difficult I have never yet met a person who said you know I just did an evil thing I'm evil and I just don't care you know I, I really, in fact the only person I ever met was there was a doctor um, who, who as far as I know has not ever been convicted of an offence but you know, actually said to me no, I think I'm evil um, but um, I've never, you know, that, that most people need, I think, to develop a justificatory narrative in order to make it possible. But I agree, but I, I don't, I think the one in which I'm evil is not one that dominates. As you probably know, we've talked about Christopher Browning already, what tend to, that tends to be, particularly in groups, tends to be we're strong. We're strong and we're brave to do this very difficult thing that nobody else will do. Which, which is a sort of type, you know, a type of, of, again, a type of justificatory narrative that, that makes it possible. But I think it's very difficult. It might be very difficult for people to say, you know, here I am doing an evil thing. Because I think people want to, don't want to, I think it's about being seen as inhuman or anti-human. And people really don't want to define themselves in that way. Although having said that, you know, we do have the odd person who has that type of discourse, but then we're back to the monster. You know, what, what you make of the person says, I want to be a monster. I want to be a monster. I want to be shut away. We have a couple of them in the hospital. You know, that I, wanted to be, I want to be someone who other people fear and hate. Um, but that quite often then takes you down a whole discourse of, you know, there's a whole discussion about unconsciously wanting to be looked after and all of that, but I won't, I won't go there right now. It's, it's connected to what you just addressed. Uh, um, you said that typically perpetrators will blame their victims, mm. that the victim mm. deserved it. Mm. Uh, since you work, you know, with perpetrators, um, what do you think about? What is your impression? Do does such a perpetrator really believe that, say? an innocent child <coughs> deserved mm. it. And, and is, is there some, some process to this, that some development that initially uh, that's their stance, you know, that what I did was the right thing to do and, and uh, because mm. it was fair game or, or yeah. <coughs> deserved yeah. it. And, and a process whereby that stance is sort of Abandoned, mm. and that they come to, to mm. see it in another way. Mm. And I guess that the, the larger issue there is, is to do with self-respect. Mm. Um, how can you abandon mm. the way you saw yes. what you did yes. uh, in, in, a, in a certain light initially, yeah. and then you start to see it in a more, uh, yeah, in, in a light that is more 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 difficult, you know, to handle. Yeah. Did I really do that? Yes. Uh, and, yeah. And <coughs> for me, it links up with Julian's comment, you see, about costs. Mm. Because let's say you take somebody into therapy. Let's say they agree 
because of course you know you can't make somebody engage in that <coughs> self-reflection of a narrative. Um, and you know there are you know there are people who just won't engage. You know I'm fine. What I did, you know she deserved it. You know that's fine. You know I'm happy with that. <laughs> you know you must be mad. You must be mad for thinking I want to talk about this with you. You know. But if they do engage, if they, and it's almost like an awareness that something might be wrong, or there's a possibility of thinking something different, um, then there's a question about the cost to them, because it can be quite costly for them. It's a process, as you can imagine. In, in, in another place, and I, I talk about this as being, you, know, you, you walk the Via Dolorosa, you know, there, mm. and there are stages. Um, but one of the costs is that people can get very distressed and suicidal. Yeah. And, um, and you've probably read Gita Sereni's. Um, book about about Franz. So for those of you who haven't read it, it's about Franz Stangl, um, and uh, about how he died. You know, really after a series of interviews yeah. about what about about his responsibility for for Treblinka, Odessa, Treblinka. So, so, um, so I'm mainly working, of course, with people who are prepared to think about walking down that road, yeah. um, and it's a bit unpredictable. Yeah. You know. Um, and you can't always tell them in advance what it will what it will be like. Informed consent is an interesting concept in this context. Um, thank you so much. It's an incredibly interesting talk. I have many many questions, but I'll try and focus on just one, which is um, I'm deeply interested in justification. Although mm. my work on is on justification, and um, mm. I wanted to ask you. I suppose I, I appreciate this may be a question that you only have a limited ability. Mm -hmm. Anyone only has a limited ability to answer. But I was wondering what your intuition was on the exact role that these justificatory narratives, as you call mm. them, which I also use, um, what role they play in the sense that are they a invasive narrative that makes an independent motivation possible, right? So these people mm. have an independent, mm. in some way, mm. reason to kill, mm. and they develop these justificatory mm. narratives to, to legitimate that, mm. or is it that the justificatory narratives provide a motivation mm. to begin with? That, that's my main question, and just as a tiny subsidiary question, and is there variation in answer to that question? So I particularly think about people like Anders Berry, yeah. right? and whether, whether in his case, you know, writes thousands and thousands of pages about mm -hmm. his political views, are they <coughs> an expression of the motivation, or are they a strategy by which some deeper reason is made plausible or legitimate to him, if that makes sense to the question? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very conscious that there are better minds in this room than mine to address this. And I'm going to be Weasley and say both. Mm. Because, I, because when I think about, it really, it really links with the conversation that we were just beginning to have, which is, I think, is about that it's a process of a story that, that, that often takes a bit of time. Just think in the homicide group, we've got a couple of guys who, who mounted uh, you know, quite profound homicidal attacks upon their families. And, and <coughs> the decision getting there took quite a while. Um, and I think that, the, I suspect that there was quite a complicated journey in which involved both those things in which the idea I think sometimes the idea then the idea may come but then how do you work with an idea you know the, the idea of doing something of doing something terrible and, and, and for me it's sort of where again coming back to Julian where would we start where should we start the process let's let's go with your plan of and I you know which I like you know, it works for me 
But where will we start? Will we start with the first time somebody says, I want to kill my mum? Um, funny enough, I've just been consulted about a 14-year-old who just said to a, st- a stunned English teacher, I want to kill my mum. And they rang me up and said, what do you think? And I said, I don't know what I think. I'll sit down and think about it. What, I mean, where, where do you... Where is, is, that where sh- is that where we start? Which I would be fine with, actually. But no, but where do we... How do we stop that, I want to kill my mum, get elaborated into a plan, mm. which ultimately ends up in a disaster? Because I'm guessing that you know, the guys in my group, I think that you know, their disaster started with an idea. So... And what was the subsidiary? Not that I'll be able to answer it. Oh, just yeah. whether there were different types of cases, whether some yeah. cases looked... I think, uh, yeah, no, I think, I mean, and, 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 I mean, you'll be glad to know, perhaps, as citizens, that, that there are some barn door cases in the hospital of, you know, I killed her because she was the Antichrist, you know, I mean, it just came to me that she was the Antichrist, and I, you know, <laughs> though, I had a, though I had a patient who did kill somebody because they were the Antichrist, and she did spend three hours thinking about it, because she knew perfectly well it was the wrong thing to do. She was in genuine fear and genuine distress, but she did know it was the wrong thing to do, and she didn't take the non-homicidal options, like going to crew or you know, well that's always the option when you're homicidal. But 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 um, um, but you know she didn't. There were other options, and she didn't take them. Um, she got not guilty by reason of insanity because she was you know on the face of it a barn door McNaughton. No, she was actively deluded. But I think in, in her therapy with me, she talked about feeling guilty. Which was interesting, given that she got a she got a verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity. What she talked about in her work with me was feeling guilty. Mm-hmm. Yes, this returns to <coughs> what has been said. Really, uh, the list you gave of of, uh, of characteristics that you uh, put under the of evil mm-hmm. can be seen equally to apply to people you might expect to find in prison, like the worst sort of human traffickers. You know, complete disregard of people's feelings. Exportations vulnerable, mm-hmm. and also people you might expect to find in a hospital. And I was wondering whether you have any sort of theoretical account of whether we have any rational reason for placing one set of offences in one place and another in another, given the fact that, the, that, that under the heading of evil, you've described what many psychiatrists have described as personality disorders. And that brings me back to I'm glad somebody mentioned the Brainwick case, because all it's different, it connects. I mean, when, when the first ruling about Brainwick came out that he'd been diagnosed as psychotic, that surprised me. So I actually expected him to be found to be suffering from, if suffering is the right word, some kind of personality disorder, most likely a narcissistic disorder. A man who thinks he's a very, very special person, to whom the ordinary rules and morality don't apply, because he has an important mission. Then they decide he's mad, and now it turns out that they're going to review that decision. I mean, is there any theoretical underpinning towards these distinctions? I mean, one, one thought might be, okay, a genuine psychopath or sociopath is somebody who lacks the capacity Whereas the ordinary criminal is somebody who has the capacity and doesn't exercise it. That's one way, but I don't really know. It's all a fault. No, well, yeah, I mean, and, and I, I think as we were hearing you know, earlier on, I, 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 I love the word quotes, platitudes, close quotes, although I thought in a way there's something here about a lot of beliefs about, or folk myths about what people who, what certain groups of people who've done horrible things are like. I mean, your question is a, is a huge one, and I, I really can't do it justice, because in, in a sense, you're also raising the, you know, how this works in the criminal justice system. And, and you will know that what happens in the criminal justice system has very little to do with rational argument. 
you know, but has a lot to do, has a lot to do with making arguments, adversarial arguments around uh, around around cases. And and the Breivik case is a is a is a is a example of this live happening before our eyes. And uh, because in a way, it's, it's what do we want to happen to this guy? Actually, what you really want, you want to tidy him away permanently, don't you? That's ultimately. Come, see, that's where I come back to where, you know, what's the, what's the outcome that we want to achieve? Does it matter how we get there? And it sort of feels like it does matter how we get there. But, well, yes, I know you don't think so. <laughs> but, but the trouble is, that if you want to tidy away Anders Breivik, you've got to make it so that you won't tidy away anybody else who looks a bit like him. Yeah? That's the, that's the reason that we want to get the process right, so that so that you don't, you and I don't get tidied away next time we write something mad on the internet. You know, the, 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 so we don't get tidied away. But clearly we want to tidy this man away. You know, um, and what his life is going to be like is an interesting one, the extent to which that's in our choice. Um, but I, I, don't, I, don't have a, I don't have a succinct answer for you. I mean, it's one of the things that has, has uh, of course, in my world has preoccupied me. And I, I, to, to be, I, I actually think it's a bit of a lottery, really, um, we have, you know, we have men in the hospital who were clearly very mentally ill at the time, get convicted of murder because of the nature of the case, and they get quietly shipped off to the hospital later on. Similarly, we get people admitted to the hospital who don't look as though they've ever had a day of any sort of illness in their lives, um, and quite how they've got there is is really to do with the conjunction of good counsel. <laughs> And, and the process, and you know, who else? What else was going on in the press that week? You know, these these are the vagaries of the criminal justice system in, in many ways, and that's a whole new ball game, which has nothing to do with good philosophical argument. Um, this is actually following up on the Norwegian uh, case. Um, mm. It seems that um, you know both issues: uh, was he, uh, does he have a diagnosis, or does he not have a diagnosis? Both raise the question: what is the relation between? Uh, a pathology and mm. moral thinking. Uh, mm. Is there a sense in which pathology stops the moral significance of the act? This is something Avi Johan and I were speaking about mm. over breakfast. Um, mm. uh, is that you know? Is that because morality is constrained by the rules of law, or uh, even if those are the legal restrictions for whether one is culpable of not or not should morality, the moral significance of the act have some other meaning? And it seems to be the other side of that, you know, whether Breivik is, um, has a diagnosis and what the implication of that is in Norwegian society, is on a much more well, ordinary or banal level uh, school bullying, which is also a topic I've been working on, where researchers often take a pathological view. Um, and uh, this, one could argue that this is also a way of morally diminishing uh, mm. uh, the, the individuals they're looking at. Mm. So pathology and morality. Well, I'm wondering what you think about this question because I think I'm, I'm, one of the things that I've been pushing around and particularly in the context of this talk and, and in the, is what is the relevance is really in your question about callous and unemotional what's the relevance of a type of biological discourse to discussions about morality. And I think there's something very, for me, there's something up here about notions of causation 
you know, and choice. Because we want to blame people who make choices, don't we? Free choices. That, in a way, is what the criminal justice system is about. Did you make a free choice? If you did, then we're going to, you know, then we'll blame you or praise you for it. Yeah. But there's a tendency, isn't there, to a type of reductionist, bio, a sort of materialist type of approach to. If you, there's something in your brain that could have caused this, then you didn't make a free choice. I mean, it's as crude as that. Now, there are lots of counter-arguments to that, many, many counter-arguments, and yet that type of talk is very powerful. Um, and I mean, I'm not saying it's completely irrelevant either, but it seems to me that there's something about a notion of something that's caused, and pathology, the language of biomedical pathology that says that this causes that. But I don't, what do you think? No, I think that's, uh, you, say you did a brain scan of, of Bremen yeah. and you found yeah. a brain tumour. Yeah. Many people say, well, a brain tumour caused something yeah. But th- that would just be the beginning yeah. of, of an investigation to try mm. to understand what the functional effects of that particular tumour, mm. when it could be in a, you know, the occipital part of his brain mm. just affecting his visual field. Yeah. Or you would have to have a lot of information. Mm. And, and this is what I was trying to get with this IQ and, mm. and yeah. You need functional assessments. You need yeah. to understand the way in which that person functions if you to attribute responsibility mm. to them. The mere finding of a pathology by itself won't mm. establish anything. It will just suggest, you know, looking in a particular direction. Mm. So I think you're right, but I'm slightly more kind of enthusiastic about the role of biology. I think it does have mm. slightly more more role to play than you, but that's another discussion. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I, I suppose what I, I have, a, I get uneasy with the sense of sort of type of Trump. No, but by, know, but a know. brain tumor could excuse you, but it yeah. also might not excuse you. So sure. it's 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 an interesting finding. But, but on your but but also on your argument, totally the functional argument, you could simply say that Mr. Breivik has demonstrated a type of significant type of dysfunctionality, and that's all we need to know. Oh no, that's, that's, that's and, 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 and in a way, we you know we don't <coughs> we don't need to get we don't need to know anything more. That you know, by their fruits shall you know them, really. And if the fruits are terrible, you know that's all you need. To know, does it really matter? Which I think is an interesting, you know, an interesting way to go, really. Um, and I think, in a way, you know, that I, I think has been <coughs> an important part of forensic psychiatric services for quite a long time. Which is, they need atten- they need attention. And perhaps that's the most important thing of all. Last question, please. A theme that's come up a bunch is the likelihood that treatment will succeed, mm. um, amenability to treatment in that sense, from your very first mm. slide to the nurses mm. to the question about in, in Julian's, not just the cost, but mm. whether it will work. And I wonder whether, in terms of your understanding of uh, uh, evil uh, agents, <coughs> whether, there's, whether there are any particular factors that you think are most important with respect to <coughs> amenability to treatment and this conversation. I, I keep looking at mm. self-acknowledgement yeah. right up there, yeah, yeah. or whether there are others. Yeah. <coughs> yes, I think one of the things that turns out that looks feels like it's very important in the hospital, really, the men tend to divide around the idea that there's a problem or there isn't. You know, um, in fact, probably we're talking about this in the homicide group on Thursday. You know, that, they, that you know, there's a group of men, quite often, quite early in their time in the hospital, who arrive and this, this is not my problem. <laughs> you know, this is all your problem. You know, I'm just going to sit here and do my time until you guys f- get fed up with me. <coughs> I'm going to wait. I'm just going to sit it out. And I'm going to wait, and I'm not going to. You know, I don't want to talk about this. And that, that, that this isn't my problem. This, it's your problem. But they're <coughs> right about that, of course. <laughs> it is our problem in a way because of the issue of risk. 
Um, so the, so it's the, the thing of darkness, I think, is important. But I mean, I, I think also a type of contempt. The guys who have great contempt for us, for me, the therapists, the psychiatrists, the nurses, a contempt for the whole pro-social process. Those guys you know, are hard to engage, um, if you like. Um, you know, they, um, <coughs> the you know people who think we you know we're rather sort of stupid for offering them assistance or help. Um, they, you know, we don't get very far with them. And it's interesting in the context of what we talk about, about narcissism. You see, I mean, I think you know if you really believe, if you have a narrative that believes that you are superior and grand, and you entirely justified in doing everything, you know, why would you want to talk to somebody? There clearly isn't a problem in in some important way. And then the only question is risk. Um, and this is where we are with Mr. Pravik, I think, isn't it? That, and as far as he's concerned, <coughs> he seems to be saying, what I did is absolutely justified in my world view. Um, I don't know whether he accepts that he's risky to other people or not. I think he probably even does seem to accept at some level that he is risky to other people. Um, but he doesn't seem to have considered the possibility that he therefore will need that the other people will respond to him as a dangerous person. And that absence of the... That's, a, that's another story, really, about not thinking about consequences and about when a lack of thinking about consequences um, is part of, of, of the problem. So it's a rather small answer to a big question.